Welcome back to the 143rd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how credit card companies are coming after some new legislation that may actually rip in to some of their profits, how the diversity, equity, and inclusion bubble has finally burst on the corporate market, and a interesting article talking about a new type of housing, passive housing, and what its future looks like. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So there are two very different standpoints, views on the social movements that are going on in the United States today. There's one view that it's growing and that it is being more vibrant and it's gaining participants every single day. And then there's another side that says, oh no, it's slowly dying. These fads are slowly going away. So what do you see when you look at the social environment? Do you see lots of social movements growing or falling away? And my point here is actually this could be true from either side. You could have liberals believing that the social movements are growing on their side or the fads are going away on the Republican side, or you could have the Republicans seeing the social movement grow on their side and the fad fade away on the other side. I want to hear everybody's opinion, especially if you're on different sides of the aisle. Obviously, be nice in the comment section. Don't go at each other's throats. But I just I'm very curious because from my point of view, it looks like some types of social fads are falling apart and some are rising to the occasion. So I want to see what everybody else feels. All right, let's jump into our first article, which comes from the American Prospect. Wall Street stokes culture war to fight swipe fee reforms. So obviously I was not an expert and still am not an expert before reading this article. And that actually should, let me be clear, that should go for all the articles I read. I may come across as very, very confident. In some topics I am. When it comes to certain business issues or economics, I have at least spent four years learning about these things, so I'm a little bit more outwardly confident. But sometimes I have just read this article and I have an opinion and I want to pretend that I know everything. Sometimes I don't. But with this one, the impression that I got is interesting, to say the least. And I'll describe what these swipe fees are. So if you go into a small business and they offer the ability for you to use your credit card, a Visa or MasterCard or an Amex, and that's why you actually may see some areas not do Amexes whatsoever or certain companies not do Amex whatsoever because their fees in order to use their service and actually take their cards is a little bit higher. So MasterCard, Visa, they're charging these businesses, not just small businesses, big businesses as well, they're charging them for the ability to use their system in order to process the payment. Well, a lot of these smaller companies and big box store companies have been really, really tired of this because Visa and MasterCard have a monopoly on the system. So there's a little bit of change in the air, and it's not coming from the populace, which is interesting. It's actually coming from some senators who wanted to help small businesses find other options. 
Quote, a bipartisan group of lawmakers is pushing for a piece of financial reform that would unshackle small businesses and consumers alike from the maw of Visa and MasterCard's credit card duopoly. Wall Street, in response, is spending millions to thwart the bill's recent advances by fueling a conservative culture war over pride demonstrations and Chinese influence. In coordination with big banks, Visa and MasterCard extract billions of dollars each year in swipe fees from retailers for cost of accepting payments from cardholders. Though the fees hit all the retailers, a portion of them are passed on to consumers in the form of higher prices. Low-margin businesses like independent corner stores or gas stations face a higher percentage of these costs relative to their revenue. And this, of course, makes sense. If you have a Walmart in your town and you have a small corner store and the Walmart brings in $100 a year and the large or sorry, small corner store brings in $50 a year and the swipe fees are a uniform $1, then Walmart, they are looking at only 1% of their revenue going back to paying off the swipe fees. Whereas the small corner store, they're looking at 2% of their revenue going back and paying for these swipe fees. So you can see how it disproportionately affects small companies. And that's what this legislation is being put forward to do, is to really tackle these companies and open up the business environment. They're trying to crack down, as they put it here, on the duopoly. The fact that Visa and MasterCard have their own processing payment softwares or programs, and they're saying, hey, no, 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 okay, just because you are the credit card companies, that doesn't mean that we have to use your payment method or we have to use your charging method. We should actually open up this network so that anybody, a third party, could come in and offer their services in order to process the payment as well, which then means MasterCard and Visa are, are going to have to lower their prices because if there's a third party that somebody else could choose to use in order to process the payments, then guess what? They're going to choose to do that because they're probably going to be cheaper than the big companies that already have a stranglehold on the market. That means that Visa and MasterCard will have to lower the prices. We have explained competition before versus monopoly. If you took an economics course in college, even in high school, you know what's going to go on here. Because of the competition, it's more than likely then the price is going to go down. So let's talk about how MasterCard and how Visa are going about and really pushing back and trying to make sure that this law does not get passed. The bill's recent advances are setting off alarm bells on Wall Street. The bank and credit card lobby are marching in lockstep with conservative dark money groups to inflame culture war issues on the right in hopes of splintering the cross-partisan coalition that has consolidated around the bill. In a recent ad campaign, shadowy right-wing groups have been issuing mailers and other advertisements claiming the CCA, which is the bill, or at least the abbreviated version of the bill, because you know how Washington is. They can't just have it be nice. They always have to abbreviate something. Quote, is a liberal handout for woke big box retailers like Target. One set of mailers was bankrolled by the Conservative Accountability Fund, a newly formed organization based in Senate Mar Senator Marshall's home state of Kansas, but without a listed address or phone number, end quote. So what are they coming after here? They're saying, oh, yeah, well, this is just a handout to the big box stores. 
And a handout is probably not the right way to put it. But yes, they will benefit. And since they take up a larger portion of the overall transactions because of their size and their prevalence across the entire United States, they will benefit a lot from this. And considering that a large majority of their transactions are credit cards, they will not have to deal with those swipe fees as much, or at least the high prices of the swipe fees, because in theory, there's a third party that comes in and they bring in competition and then a fourth party because they realize it's a lucrative market and then Visa, MasterCard have to cut their prices, so on and so forth. So yes, this is going to help a lot of those big box store companies. But is that necessarily a bad thing? Now, do I agree with every single corporate agenda that is put forth by any of the big box stores? No, I don't agree with every single thing. But I also like my prices to be a little bit cheaper. And if these overall swipe fees, if they can be lowered, and that maybe takes 10 cents off my carton of eggs, then I'm going to be happy. And also, if we open up the market for competition, maybe the processing on some of these transactions will actually be faster because we no longer have to rely on Visa and MasterCard to do their own internal investigation, R&D, and improvement of the system. And since they know they have a captive market, they don't do it as often. Maybe they don't put as much money into this research and development as we would like in order to make the system better. Now with this competition, maybe the processing will be even better and it will be even faster because now they're like, okay, hey, we actually have some competition. We need to focus on making sure that not only is ours reliable because it's been around for a long time. That's one of our distinct advantages when marketing to these companies. We have a reliable system. This new third party, we don't know about that. But maybe they even make it a distinct advantage that theirs is faster because they already have the infrastructure in place. So imagine more of these credit card transactions being processed even faster. And I don't know why that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, sorry, I take that back. I don't know why that's necessarily a good thing. I don't truly understand when looking at your bank account why it matters if that pending notification go, notification goes away a little bit quicker. But maybe there's some benefits I don't know about. I think that just overall having this competition and leading us towards a better, more efficient system is great. And also think about it this way. There could be less payments in limbo if you're trying to pay for something directly with a credit card or you're doing monthly installments and somebody won't let you have something or they try to take it back from you until that monthly installment goes through. What if the payment processor that they're using is a little bit faster after all of this? It's a possibility. So I started this whole ramble on the fact that, yes, it will help the big bot stores, but also it will help the small consumer as well. Because just because the amount of money that's being taken from the box stores is larger than these small stores because of their size and the fact that they have locations everywhere and a lot of people go to them, it is still a smaller percentage of their overall revenue than the small stores. So it's actually going to be something that helps everybody. And that's kind of what happens when you break up a duopoly or a monopoly that is inflating prices in an outrageous way. It tends to help everybody that is has been affected in the past. But, you know, maybe I'm missing something and maybe, I'm, they, maybe these right-wingers who are going for the home run with this Wall Street backing, maybe they're right. Maybe we don't understand something. So let's listen to another part or a different campaign strategy that they're going about and trying to really push back against this bill. 
quote, an ad campaign on Facebook this past month by Americans for Tax Reform, Grover Norquist's organization, pushes the same narrative with the slogan, side with customers, not woke retailers. So before I keep going, how does this aid customers? They're also getting charged or they're at least getting some of the charges and transaction fees passed on to them. If certain small businesses want to be able to service people with Amexes, a lot of people have Amexes, then they may have to raise the price on some of their goods just a little bit in order to make sure that they can actually use the service that Amex is providing. Have you ever been into a store, and this isn't exclusively Amex, but have you ever been into a store where they say in order to charge credit card, you have a minimum amount, a minimum amount of things that you buy. You end up having to buy something pointless that you don't want to eat or something pointless that you don't necessarily need. That's because their transaction fees, the fee that they pay in order to just run the processing for that credit card are too high. So they have to say, okay, you have to at least buy $6 for it to really be worth it for me. So how is this actually siding with consumers when you're inflating their prices or you're making them buy minimums at small gas stations when they're on their road trip with their family? I, I think that you can see where the bias is coming through here with this campaign. But let's let's keep reading just a little bit more so you can see some of the other points that this author is putting forward. Quote, the mailer also taps into national security fears about Chinese influence inside the USA. The Chinese national flag flies in the background behind a cutout of Senator Marshall next to a rainbow gay pride flag and then says your financial data could be processed by partners of the Chinese Communist Party, end quote. And I guess this is true. If the payment system is open to a whole bunch of other competitors, maybe a Chinese competitor can come in and sweep up all the business. Oh, wait, no, no. There's actually a provision in the CCCA, remember the abbreviation for the bill, that says that other countries can't have their undue influence in this new systems that would come about in order to challenge MasterCard and Visa. So that's actually undercut by the bill as well. So you can see how audacious and how bold the Wall Street backers or just the MasterCard and Visa backers doesn't necessarily have to be the Wall Street boys. It could literally just be the lobbyists with Visa and MasterCard, how bold they're being trying to push back on this because this is where a lot of their gravy comes in. And the real question is, well, hey, if we can have our service fees sector demonopolized, what's going to happen next? Is Congress going to come after our ability to be some of the main providers of credit cards and debit cards? That doesn't sound good. I don't I don't necessarily like that. So we'll see how everything pans out, especially with this new age of crypto where things are going to have decentralized networks anyway, and we're not going to necessarily rely on the Visa and the MasterCard system. I, I think that their day in the sun is going to be over. They're not going to go away, but they're going to slowly, slowly fade into the background. And this legislation, if it does go through, will be a big blow to them on that front. All right, so let's jump to our second article, which comes from the New York Post. And the headline reads, oh, wait, no, it actually, hold on. New York Post, we need your help. This site is supported by our trusted ad partners. Yeah, well, I have an ad blocker on for this exact reason. So if you could go away with this notification, that would be greatly appreciated. There we go. Why the diversity industrial complex bubble burst. And that's a pretty, pretty bold headline. But 
there seems to be a little bit of truth about it. Because remember here, there was a quote from Larry Fink not that long ago that he's no longer going to use the term ESG. Now that is just the term, he is going to continue using terms like conscious capitalism and things of that nature. But it seems that the fad has started to fade a little bit. And maybe that goes back to where my initial daily debate led us this morning. So let's start with a quote from this article. In my, quote, in my sub 40 years of existence, I've witnessed multiple market bubbles and collapses that in hindsight were predictable. But the warning signs of inevitability were obviously ignored. People disregarded the few naysayers because their desire to be part of an in vogue fad outweighed any common sense. But when the bubble finally bursts, the sound of an industry defeat ultimately wakes these people up from their hypnotic belief that the good times will never end. The latest bubble isn't overinflated stocks being propped up by Wall Street, but instead an overinflated diversity, equity, and inclusion industry whose importance was pumped up by corporate America reacting to the death of George Floyd. End quote. Now, I think I purposely, when I came back there, actually made my voice a little bit higher than it actually is. And I'm sorry that I put on my newsreader voice, but I, I kind of got into it there for a second. And, you know, this is a guy from New York, so I, I was trying to make it sound a very particular way. But what this author is talking about is how over the last few years, there's been a heavy, heavy push to have lots of DEI positions in lots of different companies. Because of what we saw during the COVID pandemic with the Summer of Love and a lot of these underlying issues that America's been dealing with for a long time, they were exposed again to the sunlight. And people kind of, what he's arguing here is overreacted, that corporate boards were saying, okay, in order to show that we are in solidarity with this group, Black Lives Matter, or any of these other progressive groups, or even some conservative groups who pushed up these issues to show that we are in solidarity with these groups. We are going to open up more DEI positions in our company. And then the author says that it was kind of misguided once they did so. Quote, between 2019 and 2022, DEI positions skyrocketed 170%, according to LinkedIn, with much of that acceleration happening in the wake of nationwide protests and riots in 2020. Quote, there was an urgency and a national narrative driving this demand, notes Jason Hanold, CEO of Hanold Associates, an executive search advisory firm. But that demand quickly leveled and leaded to a third of diversity positions or diversity professionals out of a job in 2022. The rush to build up a new diversity infrastructure within corporate America, often operating completely separate from human resource departments, which is odd if you figured that they're going to have programs that directly affect the people and the people that they hire in the company, they would be underneath the branch of the HR resource department. I mean, at one of the jobs that I did a little bit ago, I won't name them because that's not fair to them, a lot of the DEI stuff was underneath the HR department. So that doesn't necessarily hold that all these corporations are having their own separate department. But I imagine if you have the money and resources and you're trying to show that you care about these issues in order to not get lambasted in public, you will create an entirely different department for it. Quote, had companies nationwide failing to ask two essential questions before investing millions. How exactly do we measure the diversity department's success 
and what are these newly heralded diversity offers responsibilities? End quote. Now, I think the second one is a little bit harder to answer than the first one, but if you wanted to be really callous and you wanted to just have a raw statistic that proves the point that you care more about diversity, then you would ask, what is the racial makeup of the people that we're hiring before and after the diversity, equity, and inclusion office is in place? I know that probably sounds terrible that you're just looking at raw statistics or you're just deciding what the racial makeup of your company is, but I mean, if you're trying to be really, really straight to it and you're trying to find a metric to analyze that, that could probably be one of them. If you are hiring a less diverse workforce after the DEI office is put in place and they're probably not doing their job, right? Or maybe that's a little bit too callous on my part and a misunderstanding of what a lot of these DEI offices were supposed to do. But that's also what the author is saying, which is, we don't even know from the outside what they're supposed to symbolize, and they don't even know internally what they're actually going to be doing in order to affect change. Now, they could impose trainings. I mean, a lot of the different DI initiatives that I've experienced in different workplaces are trainings that you have to do, and maybe they could impose a few of those, but at what point is training too much? I mean, at what point have you given somebody a new training every single month? Not only is it going to get repetitive, but are people going to you know, keep tuning in and actually putting all their effort into it, or are they going to get tired of it? D- to be frank, I have worked at other places where we've gotten sexual harassment training, which is, of course, necessary nowadays in the culture, or at least seem to be necessary in the culture that we live in. And I believe it's necessary under Title IX. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong there where it's actually mentioned that these sort of things should be taken on by companies. But either way, a lot of companies are taking them on. I also know that a lot of the population that was being hired and onboarded, they just kind of skipped through it. So because we've either done this a million times before or we've experienced it a hundred different times. So at what point would people become too overly saturated with DEI trainings? So what does this person who got this new position do after a month, after they've done their initial trainings, after they've tried to implement some programs, do they just keep making more programs and spending more money in for the company? And then if they are spending more money, you have to really analyze, okay, now that we're spending all this money, is it actually affecting returns? Are, we, are these programs that we're putting in place actually giving us more money? And it's kind of hard to see how DEI programs actually convert to profitability. Now, maybe I'm misunderstanding the DEI ethos. And if somebody could explain it to me down in the comment section, I'd love to hear what you have to say. But it just, it feels a little silly at some point, especially when you have three, four new positions opening, when one person could probably do a lot of the base work and maybe two people would be necessary in order to help them. And also when they're operating completely outside of HR, meaning their, their own bosses as well, they're setting up their own metrics for success. I, that, that's another interesting part here that the author doesn't even bring up. If you, at least you're in HR, there's a pre-existing structure of reporting and you have one person who can create new metrics because they've been working in the HR department for a while. They have an understanding of what's going on. But if you're comp- completely creating a new department, for DEI. And let's be clear, there has not been a lot of DEI departments before, so you don't have a lot of experienced managers who understand what these metrics need to be in order to signify success. You're actually putting in people who are new to this job because it is a new 
department or job title as of the last five years. And in the top position in that department, and then getting them to create the metrics from the ground up, therefore they could create metrics that don't necessarily make sense and don't actually prove to be leading towards profitability. Just like how when we first implemented HR systems and programs and departments and companies, it took a long time to refine what actually works and how they actually benefit the company overall. So this is, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that this is a new area. And to pretend that we can have it all figured out initially and that DEI is just, these departments are always good and that they don't need refinement. There's not going to be need to be tweaking going down the road, I think is a little bit silly. But then again, a lot of DEI people are not saying that they're not going to need to do tweaking. They're not saying that it's going to be perfect right off the rip. But the author seems to give that idea that a lot of the people that were developing these DEI departments did at least have that mindset. Oh, no, we don't have to alter too much. We're not going to have to rejiggle everything. We are going to come in and we're going to do these programs. We don't have to worry about all the basics of corporations or the bottom line. We're just going to do our job and make sure that diversity, equity, inclusion is ever more present in this corporate arena. And then you ask, and how are you going to do that? How are we going to measure that? And they're like, uh, well, we'll, we'll make that. So I think that the bubble has definitely burst. A lot of these jobs have not been accepted after a few years. Maybe they're cut, these corporations are cutting back a little bit. But we'll see if it continues forward. They refine everything. And then we have a, a new version of the HR department here in 20 years. We'll see. It may become a normal part of our corporate lives. All right, let's jump to our last article that comes from the Wall Street Journal. And this article is triple-digit heat, but no electricity bill. For passive house owners, it's hard to go back. And honestly, this piece is a, a very nice read. It kind of reads more like a historical piece, or maybe if you were having a nice story told to you about your neighborhood watch or something like that. It It's more of a, oh, hey, let me tell you these people's stories who bought the house. So I'm not necessarily going to do a lot of quoting from this article. I'm just going to talk about the overall picture that it likes to provide and some of the interesting facts about these new houses that are called passive houses. But I will pull out one quote that describes how the system actually works and how they're actually achieving that low electricity bill that was mentioned in the headline. Quote, the heating and cooling comes from small mini split-style heat pumps and connected to condense the condenser outside the house when necessary. The house also uses ERV, or energy recovery ventilation systems, to circulate air and maintain a clean and fresh indoor air environment. In the winter, the system pulls heat from the exhaust in the air and transfers it to incoming air, thereby reducing the heating load rather than burning gas or oil. These air tubes run throughout the house and extract stale air and pull in fresh HEPA-filtered air. The system exchanges the total volume of air five to seven times a day. All three homeowners opted to install solar panels. So let's talk here about this new trend because it's also not just happening. This is in uh, Massachusetts, but it's also not just happening in Massachusetts. There is a nonprofit in Chicago that is certified to actually designate whether a house is a passive house or not. 
And these are all meant to better utilize, they're very sealed, and they're bet- meant to better utilize the conditions in the air outside and then put them through smaller, more efficient systems in order to create clean, cool air or warm air. But the house is very well insulated. So if you set it to 72, you probably have your system run for about an hour. It goes to 72. And then because it's so well insulated, and they have actually special shades that some of these people have put in, that it actually keeps the house around 72 for a long period of time. So these new passive house houses are very, very interesting. And the thing about them is they're supposed to be sustainable, and that's why they get such a large premium. All of the families here either spent $100.4 million on their house or one of the, the gentlemen who is a single person paid $1.5 million for his, and it seems to be just a little bit bigger than the other ones. But the nice thing about these houses here is they're supposed to be able to, if the power goes out for any particular reason, if they're off the grid, then they're insulated in a way that they could maintain their temperature if it's blazing hot outside or extremely cold outside for a long period of time. So what's the special sauce here? One, they have a very special ventilation system that's very, very tightly sealed, so air can't just come out willy-nilly, but also they're just very heavily insulated with very special insulated windows. And they're also pointing a very particular direction so they could harness the heat from the sun as well on days where it's a little bit colder and they want to run their system and make it be a little bit warmer throughout their house. So I'm not necessarily doing them justice. I did want to just bring up this article. I knew that we wouldn't necessarily have all the time in the world to discuss it because the other two articles were fascinating and I really wanted to take a deeper dive on those. But I would recommend that you go and look at it. And if you want to find any of today's articles, there's a link in the description below the like and subscribe button where you can find all of them. But with that said, let's jump in to our daily delight. This one comes from Daily News Post. Now, if that is not the name of a website that does news, then I don't know what is. The headline reads, Monkeys Unleash Inner Child While Sliding on Rails. So my question is, did you really even have a childhood if you didn't slide down some railings? I mean, that you know, that seems like a standard practice. Quote, in a mesmerizing viral video, intelligent and adorable monkeys demonstrate the simplest method to descend a simple flight of stairs by sliding down the steel railings of a temple that's situated atop the mountain. You know, and it's also, it's really nice to see some non-humans, you know, finding delight in this practice and something that's a really small thing that we used to enjoy when we were a little bit younger. Quote, while their method may not be unique for us, it demonstrates their simplicity and ability to find a simpler solution to daily fun. The video shows the monkey's intelligence and ability to learn from one another. End quote. If you want to see any of the cute videos or photos from today's articles, or you want to read any of today's articles about the news, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find a link to the Twitter, uh, sorry, X, at Your Daily Flip, where I post Twitter tirades every Tuesday or Thursday. And yes, I am keeping the name Twitter tirade because I'm not calling them X tirades. That just sounds absolutely stupid and absurd. But with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.